Welcome back to A Beautiful Faith, where we give voice to all that makes faith beautiful. Henry, how are you? I am doing quite well, surviving the pandemic fears. Oh, yeah. No, for real. What? We just went, we just tried to go to Walmart like 30 minutes ago or so, and the entire aisle of toilet paper out. Like, seriously, has anyone ever gotten the flu, cold, or anything related to this kind of thing that causes you to have the runs for 200 weeks? Like, yeah. why well, do you need that many I think they're rolls about, of toilet paper? I think they're worried about being quarantined and forced to stay home for a long period of time. I think that's what they're worried about. But even then, I don't know why. So you stockpile 400 rolls yeah, of that's toilet what, paper that's a piece? Like, how are you going to go through? You don't even go through that much in a year. Yeah. <laughs> it's just wild. Um, like, I just needed a normal amount of toilet paper. Because I'm almost out, and they, um, and they were gone. Like there's nothing there. And when you, you know, you and I were talking about this while we were walking through the store. Like when you do check out with a normal amount of toilet paper, they think you're a part of the craze to get it, hoard it. Yeah, yeah. So then you feel like unnecessary shame. Yes, for a normal bodily function. Exactly. And the need to have a roll. Well, and <laughs> it, we did end up finding it. Um, I don't want to say where. In case I need more at some point, and I don't want them to run out too. All I'll say is, don't check the big stores. Um, I think that's the safest way to put that: is just don't, don't, don't go to the biggest stores out there, and you should be fine. Uh, but no, other than that, everything's fine. I think um, I am the one who really has to survive the big pandemic because I have asthma, and my life goes downhill real quick uh, should I get sick. And there was a there was a period of about seven years of my life where if I got if I got a cold, I was going to the ER. It would always turn into bronchitis and it would always be terrible where nothing would work except going to the ER and getting like a nebulizer treatment of basically pure oxygen <laughs> to and and a ton of steroids to open up my my like the bronchial tubes and all the passageways to my lungs so I could breathe. So yeah, I I really am trying to survive the pandemic, but neither here nor there. Yeah, and and please note, depending on when this drops, by the time we record this, either it will have turned into a much worse thing than we are joking about, or it will prove to be basically a bunch of hype for nothing. Yeah. And only, you know, companies like Purell will be like Mr. Smithers throwing wads of cash at themselves. I'm just picturing the uh the is it DuckTales? I think the DuckTales intro oh, yeah. where he uh, dives into the yes, gold. Yes, he has the vault that he opens and he's yes. just swimming in all the gold coins. <laughs> Which is, yeah. that makes me think of the Family Guy scene where Peter tries to do the exact same thing and he jumps in and he goes, and he uh, when he when he jumps in, he hits it and breaks like every bone in his body. <laughs> yes, because it's And he's like, this is, this is not liquid at all. It is a cold, <laughs> hard, metallic surface. <laughs> yeah. I think everybody's made some joke about swimming and money at some point. Wasn't there a South Park episode where Kenny made a bet and he made him give it to him in smaller and smaller coin amounts so he not could Kenny, swim? Not Kenny, it was Kyle. The, Kyle. Yes. That was like, I'm not going to reference what that was. Your hundred dollars. I think the bet was, yeah, the bet was The bet gross. was inappropriate. Yes, but but he made him give it to him like pennies or something so he could swim around a little kiddie pool in the yard. No, he he uh, gave he made him give him a hundred dollars. Then he went to the bank. He's like, guess what, Kyle? I turned your hundred dollars into all ones. And then he brought a kiddie pool and he just threw the ones like, ah, oh, and he bathes in it. And he's like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah look at I'm... all this money. Oh, then he turns it into quarters. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, he kept making it smaller and smaller amounts. So. It was amazing. Um, yeah, so, but anyway, I mean, obviously, just use common sense, washing your hands, other things like that. If not that we are medical professionals, but, you know, just keep yourself 
take care of your hygiene. Don't do anything dumb. And uh, please don't freak out.com and act lstupido.org and we should survive. And stop hoarding toilet paper. Okay. <laughs> From the people who just need it now. Um, no, they're probably selling it on eBay. That's what they're doing. Um, I mean, and, and the Purell. Are you filling your bathtub with Purell and laying in it? Like, why do you need <laughs> that much Purell? Okay. Is what it is. Um, so today we're talking about denominational affiliation. Something and, else that gets insane. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and basically, whether it's a good thing, a bad thing, what is it? Why does it matter or not matter? Um, and when you were on a journey of, uh, you know, when, when we're on a journey of reconstruction and deciding what our new faith kind of looks like, where does that, you know, do we align ourselves somewhere or do we remain independent? What does it, you know, what impact does that actually have on us realistically? And I think that's a really important conversation to have. Yeah, and if you've already listened to our episode about faith communities, we've already said if you're going to be on a spiritual journey, you're going to have to interact with community at some point. Yep. And especially in the Christian realm, then when you start talking about community, it's inevitable denominations are going to come up. Yep. Um, even from non-denominational communities. Yes, uh, which, that it, which, which we'll get into that, yes. but non-denominational isn't really non-denominational. It, it's usually the sign just drops the denominational label off of it, yeah. but they usually are subscribed in some way, shape, or form to a denominational subset of theology. So, Which is funny to me because like, it, it almost feels like non-denominational is a denomination at this point on its own, if it wasn't all just reproducing or repackaging. Correct. Yeah. Well, I, I used to joke, even when I was a kid, that non-denominational was, you know, like non-denominational Christian school is just code word for Southern Baptist here in the South. Yeah, well, and... <laughs> that allowed a Methodist yeah. or a Presbyterian to attend, you know? Not that this needs to be a big rant against non-denominational churches, because I think there's a lot of them that do really good work, but what... What what my experience has been personally with a lot of non non denominational churches has been that's the place that all the people who were judged by their old faith communities go to judge their old faith communities. Yes, that's essentially what it becomes is a safe haven for for uh, for hurt people. Which fair enough, you have been hurt and burned by an old denomination or yes. old church affiliation, but where a lot of them go to say we're not like them, and, and hurt people hurt people. So yep. they turn around and. These churches are planted with unhealthy DNA, and so they can't help but reproduce some of the same things. It's kind of like we see in the political sphere, like with the Arab Spring and stuff like that, that oppressed societies, when they're freed, without some sort of particular intervention or, or miraculous figureheads or something, not miraculous, but like particular figureheads that can control or help, like Nelson Mandela in South yep. Africa and the transition from apartheid and things like this, somebody that can channel these energies into better pursuits basically they end up using the same methods by which they were oppressed to oppress others yep right it it's a real it's a real thing so i think the first step as always on any show that you talk that i am on we always start with a definition um so what is the definition of a denomination of the word denomination. Like what is our operating definition so that whenever we're using this word, everyone knows what we're talking about. Right. Well, at its root, denominations are simply faith communities that embrace certain doctrines, traditions, habits, and priorities. And that's not an or, it really is an and because doctrines is has to be it, it, I mean, we're talking about denominations of Christianity, so that the idea of a religious 
overt an overtly religious identity is included. So this isn't like an or thing. This it really is an and. It it is all of the above. Yes, and and notice we've added in habits and priorities as well, because most people think of doctrines or traditions, but there is something about cultures that develop within these mm-hmm. subsets that that are very much associated with denominations, and it's something that's going to impact your experience within them. So, yeah. I mean, the definition is, again, denominations are faith communities that embrace certain doctrines, traditions, habits, and priorities. And it's okay for those things to interact with each other, right? D- doctrines can lead to habits and priorities and traditions. I would hope they would. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like all four of those things are independent of each other. They definitely can feed into each other, but it is it is a reality. So, for example, the Methodist Church which I'll bring this up later as well if I remember to. Um, but the Methodist Church is going through a pretty hefty split right now over um, over LGBTQ+. plus. I think it's ministers, but is it just acceptance in the church? No, I think it's ministers now. I think, I think, the, it's me- ministers, I think the, method, yeah. the worldwide Methodist Church has already been accepting. They're basically, yeah. they're basically following in the footsteps of the Presbyterian communions that have been having splits over the same thing, and we'll... We'll get into some of that later because that actually feeds into a lot of denominational identity in modern America is a lot of splits on certain issues like this. But the idea being that that doctrines or theological beliefs on how uh, LGBTQ plus individuals should be treated and accepted within the church led to some people making it a priority to accept them and bring them into the fold. Right. Like that's what I mean by doctrine leading to priorities. And there's yeah. nothing necessarily inherently wrong with that. It, that should, that's how it should be, is that your beliefs lead you to prioritizing things differently, valuing things differently, and living differently. Right, and that's, and that's something we're going to discuss. Whether, whether we like it or not, the thing is, whether you consider yourself Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Assemblies of God, Lutheran, whatever the label, if these labels are taken seriously, they do actually mean something. Right, so th- there is something at least to be said about, and again, we're jumping the gun here, we'll go down further in this, there is, there is a certain use to at least denominations as a classification system or to help you sort through stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Henry, why don't you give us a, because you're the one who did all the reading here, um, <laughs> why don't you give us a brief history on how we got to this point, because denominations weren't always a thing. Right, or at least not as not in, we, yeah, not in the current form. Yeah, not in, not in their current form, or at least. And, and again, we're going to assume most of our listeners are within the United States, or, or at least some Western English-speaking society that, that would kind of follow after this. But at least in the United States, we have really five general periods that lead into what we now modernly understand as denominations in the United States. And I'm not talking about the development of each individual denomination. I'm just saying how denominations have interacted with society or how society has understood them or had to deal with them. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first would be the proto-evangelical period, which is basically, and these are just rough date estimates, because, I mean, if you get into the nuance, I'm not a complete expert in this. This is more of a general overview. This is a general overview to help you do your additional research, but proto-evangelical period, which is about 1600, you know, the early 1600s to 1720. And this is basically what scholars will say is the old world denominational traditions being planted in the new world, because obviously America is being founded, or I should say colonized, not founded, because there were native populations here already. But so they they were coming in through 
And so you have the denominational traditions of Western societies like the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, France, wherever our colonists are coming from, they're bringing their denominational traditions with them, whether that's Puritanism, right? We think of the Puritans or or anything else like that. They're, They're bringing denominations that existed in Europe over here, and they were usually singular traditions in the state-run churches of the time period, right? So that's what they were doing. So that's basically the DNA is being transferred from Europe to the New World. Well, then you move into the evangelical revival period, about 1720 to 1820, about a 100-year period where, it's very interesting, a very big event in the Americas happens that really influences the beginnings of trans-denominational identities and cooperation in certain spheres, and that would be the American Revolution. So prior to the American Revolution, you have these denominational identities that are imported from Europe, but there's not really a lot of cooperation or involvement with one another until the American Revolution forces congregations and churches and denominations in the New World to figure out where they stand on this issue and how they deal with the population through it. And, and so it's kind of planting seeds for transdenominational cooperation in certain spheres. Mm-hmm. Then you move to denominational evangelical polemicism. That's the third era. I know these big words. And this is about 1820 to 1920. And this is one of the two big eras that really start influencing stuff as we would understand it today. So denominations in the 1820s through 1920, they're competing and challenging one another in ways they never had before. So before, okay, you're you're a Puritan, or before, okay, you're an Anglican, or whatever. It, people just, that's what it is. You, you didn't really have massive cooperation where they're trying to one-up one another or shove one another out of certain spheres of a town or city or societal involvement. And this really happens, interestingly enough, in, in the, the early 1820s and moving on to the 1920s, because churches, denominations started competing, particularly in Protestant circles, which is where most of your denominations are, Mm-hmm. In Protestantism, they start fighting one another for influence to combat Catholic growth via immigration. So basically, they're all paranoid about what many of them considered at the time the Antichrist system. And you have a lot of immigrants coming from Ireland, from Italy, from other areas that are, are heavily Catholic, and the denominations freakout.com. And they go, Well, we've got to not only stop the Catholics, the papal system. But we're better placed to do that, and we also need to like hunker down, and the bigger we are, the better we are in combat this. And so they start fighting for who should be bigger and have more influence. And the other big reason why they start fighting is because they're concerned about modernist ideas coming about as well as something called the Second Great Awakening in the United States, which happens really in the 1840s, which brings about a new wave of denominational faith traditions. Right, uh, three big ones that stem out of this period that people would probably recognize as Mormonism gets started in this period, and that really freaks out a lot of denominational sectors of society. Uh, Seventh day Adventism comes out of that. Ryan yep. and I's own faith tradition comes out of this period, and then Jehovah's Witnesses are going to come out of this this same type of period. So there's three more movements that jump on the scene, and again, denominations are just fighting one another to combat that, to deal with it, uh, whatever, so they're just fighting. Well, that finally gives way after the end of the First World War 
into pan-evangelicalism, so about 1920 to 1970. So now we're finally getting into closer to our lifespans and things that our parents, our, our grandparents would recognize. And this is basically where all those denominational battles really exhaust everybody, because we're human and that would be exhausting. And it starts giving way because of certain things that come onto the scene. For one, parachurch ministries. Mm. When I'm talking about that, this would be the rise of things that we would definitely recognize today, stuff that isn't run by a church, but is directly involved with your church or theology or whatever. Parachurch ministries become a thing. They start primarily from the missionary side, so organizations that are like, we're going to help further the work, again, because part of those denominational battles, we've got to win more people, and the church isn't doing it fast enough, and we're going to defend it by running our own organizations and sponsoring missionaries and things. But but they also move into radio ministries, eventually television ministries, you know, you think of televangelists, things like this, the, these parachurch ministries really get going, and they tend to, because they work outside of the church, be less dependent on denominational guidelines, denominational yeah. control— that they're they're much more fluid with their theologies to accomplish whatever their end goals are, and you have a lot of people across different denominations that may particularly support one, right? You had interfaith cooperation and missionary guilds, the the Gideon Bible Society. People would recognize that if you go into a hotel room and open up the Gideon Bible. So that's not run by any particular church, yeah. But that was a group of a lot of different denominations that got together and like we need to put Bibles everywhere, right? And and so you start having these parachurch ministries driving interdenominational cooperation. Another big thing that hits is World War II, and ecumenicism has to really get started within the army, within the chaplain corps. That would be a fascinating discussion for another time, but because of four million men being drafted in the United States and religion still being an important part of society at that point, they only can find a little under 8,000 chaplains which means you can't have a chaplain for every single denomination persuasion and every single regiment of the army. Mm-hmm. It does not work. Well, then how can, if you're a regiment of 800 guys or whatever, and you get the Catholic, but you're mostly Protestant, and then the Catholic regiment over here gets a Protestant, yeah, or one of them gets a rabbi from a Jewish tradition, right? Um, how can they minister to everybody? And so these faith groups that never cooperated in real society— basically because of a war situation, have to sit down and go, okay, we probably need to understand each other better, and then how can we minister to all these different people? So it starts driving the early ecumenical movement just out of necessity. Then you have anti-communism that comes up really in the 50s and 60s, McCarthyism, whatever, and because communism was viewed as anti-religion, all these denominations began in the United States cooperating as being against that, and pro, again, religion, so we need to cooperate against the communists. And then finally, you have the domestic political turmoil that results from the Vietnam War, uh, forging basically denominations to start cooperating on the political level to mm. deal with a lot of different things. So this is really where evangelicalism gets its birth, particularly in the 60s and 70s. It, it's kind of, it builds on all of these things. And then finally, you hit to what we would call the Basically, what encompasses our present era, post-denominationalism, or the post-denominational era, right? And this is basically a reaction from 1970s to the present. Really, in the early 1980s is when it really gets going, but you can count as far back as the 70s. It's a reaction to the political co-opting of institutional priorities. 
which is a fancy way of saying as the denominations start cooperating in the political sphere, it turns off more and more people who believe that the, their denominations are being co-opted by political parties or priorities mm. instead of the Bible or faith or theology. Yeah. Right. So people start getting turned off by that, which coincides at the same time with a general distrust of institutions brought about by the Vietnam War anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. So people are distrusting universities. They're distrusting the government. They're just, anything that's an institution is now viewed as corrupt or co-opted or we can't trust them. And the Vietnam War really accelerates that idea. So a denomination is an institution. Right. So now I don't trust them either. And we already see they were co-opted by politics anyway. So we're done. Uh, and then, of course, you have mega church movements. And by by that, I'm not just talking para church ministries, I'm meaning like mega churches. So, you know, three, five thousand, the crystal yeah. cathedral, the 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 whatever, the, these big movements where where again e- Me- mega churches only feel recent because technology has allowed their message and their brand to be a lot more widespread yes. in general. But mega churches have been a thing for fifty years now. Easy. Yeah, and they really their heyday starts being the seventies and the eighties. Mm-hmm. And and yes, more, more of our generation would recognize them from the '90s, but they're just by that point that the the model had quote been perfected, right? And out of the megachurch movement comes two other things: the praise and worship scene, which just I, I, I'm not, we're not trying to make a statement about whether we think because we know there's fights in churches. Some of you have probably dealt with it, like ah, it's the ecumenical movement ruining our identities because everyone's singing the same stuff now. But whether you think it's good or bad, it does have an influence because it starts negating one of the denominational areas of uniqueness was music, uh, hymnology, which is a very, basically the hymnal, it'd be a fascinating yep. topic for another time. But it, it basically starts meaning people from a different, a lot of different denominations start recognizing the same music, they start enjoying the same things, they start cooperating in concert levels and, and, and other things and consuming the same media. Yeah, which starts diluting the influence of denominations for good or for bad. And then finally, you have the big theological splits within mainline Protestant traditions, starting with primarily the Presbyterian community. And and what I'm saying with that is not that Presbyterians are horrible. And if you're a Presbyterian, we're not trying to pick on you. It's just that Presbyterians led the way in kind of what we were talking about, we started off by talking about the Methodists. Ryan brought up the Methodists having a split right now at the denominational level. Well, they're just following about 15 years behind the Presbyterians who started splitting over all of these things, which is why you have PCUSA. So basically Presbyterian USA, you had the associate reformed Presbyterians that split over things. And now you've just had another split within Presbyterianism within the last five years, which is basically Presbyterian evangelical and again, all these splits were happening over theological debates, but they were really the first mainline denomination to experience massive ruptures in their faith communities over mm. faith. That's the, that's the only reason yeah. I'm bringing it up. Not that Presbyterians are, uh, just they were the first ones to kind of tell everybody this can happen and shock yeah. people that this could happen, but then kind of paved the way for other denominations like Methodists or, or Anglicans or the mm-hmm. Episcopal Church, whatever, to, to be like, oh, that's a way to deal with this. And so the splits kind of st- like a snowball effect and started becoming easier for people to do. And so by people watching all of these splits, then again, the praise and worship scene and the mega church movements and a general distrust of anything. Anyway, people just really started giving up on denominations yeah. as a identifier. And so we kind of moved into the non-denominational 
period where all of a sudden it became cool for everybody to be a non-denominational church, <laughs> right? And, and it really came about because of this, and that's the era we find ourselves in today, to the point that it's become, quote, so non-denominational or so split that, Ryan, you did a little bit of research before we started this talk. How many registered denominations now exist in the United States in our present era of denominational history? Yeah, so we're sitting at uh, just around 200 individual denominations. These are Christian denominations. We're not talking about like uh, the, what is it, the the Satanist church, which is the, um, I don't think they count as an actual Christian denomination. Yeah, we're saying registered. We're, saying we're not registered, saying there's not yeah. an independent um, little building in your town that a well, bunch of people are in. No, there's the, there's the, the I don't think it's the Church of Satan. There, there's two, there's an actual Satanist church group like an actual like we believe and follow satan but then there's also the the satanist group that just parodies basically that just exists to uh make fun of them make fun of make fun of them and um help enforce um separation of church and state and uh like they don't actually believe they believe in like common sense they're basically atheists for all intents and purposes but they've they're trolling the yeah. political sphere and yes. satanists um, so their entire existence is just existence is mainly a parody that's done really well one way or the for better or for worse it's done they do it really well. Um, but that's the reality is two hundred denominations and all I can't well many I won't say all because I don't even know all two hundred of them but many if not all would say that they have the truth with a capital T they have absolute truth they have the truth and anyone else. It may have a part of it, but they don't have it all correct. And would and most of them or all of them would say that other denominations or all of the other denominations are simply misled. Uh, they don't. Yeah, they they are wrong. Um, and as a result of a lot of these things, many, if not all, again, have significant institutional baggage. <laughs> whether that is cover-ups, whether that is like racketeering crimes, whether that's sexual assault history, you know, there could be any number, embezzlement, whatever it is, all of them have pretty significant, or most of them have pretty significant institutional baggage to some degree. Which that is, is what a lot of the non-denominational sectors point to for why we should just be done with it all. Correct. Um, and then the non-denominational ones also end up having some of those issues too. So... It, I can understand why, with so many to pick from, it can be really daunting, overwhelming, and just plain discouraging, really. Because when you think about that, and you're like, I, why, I don't want to align myself with, with um, I don't want to align myself with anyone, because it's, there's no point. There's such a low chance that I'll be right. One out of 190, uh, one out of 200. Or what if all of decisions. them are wrong? Yeah. yeah, what if all of them are wrong? And so I... Like, I understand why for a lot of people, as they're rebuilding their faith, they're wondering, should I even align with the denomination? And most likely during the reconstructive process, you may not be aligning at all with the denomination. Right. Or obviously during a reconstructive journey, you're just coming out of deconstruction, which means you already have a great, probably in some area or a lot of areas, depending on where you've deconstructed from, you have a lot of general distrust of institutions anyway. You've fallen into that movement of post-denominational sections, right? I mean, because you're like, well, man, either because of a cover-up, something they did to you, or you find out something just has been a lie the whole time. Again, so why do you want to turn right back around and attach yourself to the baggage of something else when you're trying to escape the baggage? <laughs> yep, exactly. So 
don't think it's a bad thing to for temp at least for even a temporary time say like I'm not going to outright align myself with any denomination because I want to try and be as neutral as possible in building whatever my faith will be. Um, like I get that. There's no, I, I don't necessarily have an issue with that. But I think um, what we want to do here is is actually address this this very issue of what do I do with all of these denominations and what does that mean for my individual faith. I think we want to address that and kind of help navigate some of this this stuff and. I don't think either of us are going to end this by saying that you should join our political or political, <laughs> political our well. particular faith tradition. Um, it sounds like I just like it. There could be an entire conspiracy built around what I just said. Yeah. Like, oh, he let it slip. There are there are political institutions. Here's the here's evidence. Um, oh, let's make an hour long YouTube video with with heavily artifacted JPEG images and slideshow <laughs> format. With a voiceover and creepy cult music to show how this is all a. As I said, you just you just went back to pan evangelicalism. Yep, uh, <laughs> which is exactly why we're rebelling in the post denominational. Jesuits sunk the Titanic. Um, so the, the iceberg was a believer in the Pope. Oh no, there's an entire chain of like, yeah, there just happened to be a Jesuit in particular positions. It's a night, uh, uh, yeah. of course. You know, for um, any of our Roman Catholic listeners, we are. I, I don't know whether you should feel flattered or not that everybody chooses you to be the source of all conspiracies. But, yeah, you know. <laughs> right. Congratulations. <laughs> but also, sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> the so so the typical response uh, to this that a lot of people give, and as a reason for not aligning with a denomination, uh, is a. It's, I won't say it's typical. It's actually I think less common now than it was probably ten years ago. But some form or another, this 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 parable exists in the logic of people who choose not to align themselves with the denomination. The parable is uh, the parable of the blind men and an elephant. The idea is uh, there's a bunch of blind men who have never been exposed to an elephant before, never seen an elephant, never heard of an elephant, uh, who all are feeling a different part of the of the elephant one is grabbing a tusk one an ear does the elephant one a leg. feel very exposed yes it does and all of them are describing they're saying no the elephant the elephant is this oh no an elephant is this and they're all describing their own subjective experience denying the subjective experience of others and saying no their experience is what the truth is for everyone it feels like this in their objective yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so that is um that's the that's the parable of the blind man and the elephant. The idea is, or the moral of it, is that humans have a tendency to claim absolute truth based on their limited subjective experience as they ignore other people's limited subjective experiences, which may be equally true. Um, so in other words, all the denominations have a piece of the truth, so but none of them have it all right. That's usually that. That's usually how this comes out. Is I don't need to. There's no point in aligning with them because all of them have something wrong. They only have part of the truth. It's really not worth, you know, it's really not worth the time. And so I want to talk about whether or not this logic actually does work. Right? Does this parable hold water? Does this does does this logic hold water, or is this something that that doesn't work? And, um. Personally, I don't know how you feel about this, Henry. Personally, I actually think this is incredibly problematic and becomes it ends up becoming very hypocritical. So it's the elephant in the room? Yes, it is. Um, 
you're trying to get me to react and I'm not doing it. Um, <laughs> I will eventually. I hate you. Um, the <laughs> there it is. The um, the idea. The main flaw in the idea of the elephant and the blind men parable is that you as the narrator know that there is a whole elephant and uh, what it actually looks like so that you know already that the blind men all are only feeling a piece of it. Yeah, it you're assumes, the arbiter of truth. Correct. It assumes that you know more than the people in the story. And the irony of saying they all have a piece of the truth, there's no point in joining them, meaning... If you're if you're determining to go your own route, you're saying that this is truth that you're going to follow, which means once again, you're now you're falling to the exact same thing that you said all the denominations have fallen into, which is a piece of the truth, not all of it. Um, and so this is a problem because, A, we don't know what the elephant looks like, right? We don't 100 percent know exactly who or what God is made of, right? Like we don't, there's a lot of unknowns about, about God. It's a great mystery, the Trinity, all of it. Um, but to say that, oh, well, they have a piece of the truth. If you don't know what that truth is or can't define what that truth is, then how can you say anyone has a piece of it? That's I, I, like, it, it doesn't, I, I don't think even logically it holds weight, even though I understand the heart of it and the understanding of it. So, that's that's how I feel. I don't know how you feel about this one, Henry. No, I mean, I would I would agree with you there. And it also brings up other related topics. Maybe we should do podcasts at some point, too, but like the validity of the scriptures. Oh, yeah. Right, because a lot of denominational complaint or fight or whatever is over definitions of one particular book. Right, this isn't just truth in general. Like, they're not all having a fight over gravity. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, they're they're having a fight over a religious text, right? That these denominations have held certain beliefs or understandings or whatever of this religious text, which again is you to say, while you're holding this text, I know more about it than all of you. Yeah. Yep. Wait, wait. It's uh, at which point are you still on a reconstructive journey anymore? I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've you've pretty much constructed everything that you wanted to construct there for sure. Um, so. We're not saying that I, I I don't want to say that anyone is stupid or dumb for having this logic. No one That's is not dumb it at all. What I want to do is it was basically just shine a light on um shine a light on why this isn't really something that I think can can adequately explain or justify not joining a faith community in general. Um and no, that does not mean that I'm saying that you must join a denomination either. I'm not saying that you need to be baptized as a member in in any denomination necessarily. But we will both only, I think I speak for Ryan and say this, we're both going to say our only criteria is you join a community of faith. Correct. That's that's pretty much the You correct, have to yeah. be with other people. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's a lot of people, especially if there are Adventist leaders who listen to this or just Adventists in general that listen to this who might look at us and go, well, we have the truth. You should be encouraging them to join our church and, and be a part of that. And and so I just want to answer to that real quick because this is our faith tradition and where a lot of our platform lies. And basically what I would say is um, let people have their journey. <laughs> um, no one has to be anything right this second. Um, and we are not the ones that guide or direct someone else's journey. God is the orchestrator of that. And I think however that needs to play out, we need to let it 
play out to well, some I'm extent. Well, I'm a firm believer that truth can withstand scrutiny and investigation. Absolutely. If what we believe is true, and I would hope we believe that if we are part of the particular community or faith tradition we are, or else why are we here? <laughs> if it, Right? If it's true, then people going on a reconstructive journey who are seeking truth, don't you think they could eventually end up here? Yeah, exactly. Right? But, it's, it's, it's a cultish mentality that goes, thou shalt not pursue or look at anything else because they're worried Usually in yeah. that case, that what they're teaching is hogwash, and if mm-hmm. you start investigating, you'll figure that out really quick. Yeah, exactly. So um, I hope that answers that. Um, we're not like betraying our own faith tradition, but understanding that that um, everyone does have their own independent journey, and there's and whether you end up Adventist or not, what matters is you're someone who's following Jesus, and you're following Jesus wherever he leads you. So um, that is just something that's really important to us, and I think the the highest priority for the both of us. Um, I know plenty of people who make better Christians than I do, quote unquote, um, who are not in my faith tradition at all. There's, uh, your, and I think that's one of the, one of the key things here is that your faith tradition or denomination that you belong to, uh, does not define how saved you are and does not define the quality of your Christianity. Um, there is no, and I think this is the this is the the bottom line on it. Denominational affiliation doesn't save you. It doesn't. No, I mean it saves me, but it doesn't save you. That's the oh. that's the problem. No. So, um, here's here's a fun question, and this is where I bring the Methodists back up. Does having this many denominations inherently cause a negative form of division? Does it does it cause or or uh, prompt or perpetuate division uh how would you answer that question i mean obviously it it perpetuates a certain kind of division i don't know if that necessitates it being negative i mean in today's tribal culture kind of political clans and all of that i think it just gives more and more groups the ability to use it negatively i would agree but that that is a that's not an inherent negativity that, yeah. or I should say it's not an intrinsic negativity it's an imposed yeah. negativity. So, I mean, if there was in, I'm trying to think on the cuff here, how we would, if there was anything I might be willing to say is in inherent negativity, it's that it just overwhelms people. Yeah. Like I said, because you have so many of them, that it just finally reaches a point where people are like, well, this is ridiculous. No one knows what they're talking about. It just discourages investigation, in my opinion. Yep. My thing is, and here's what I mean by negative division. There is forms of division that I think are good and positive. Uh, for example, I would argue that most of Christianity and those that follow and and are a part of ISIS, there's a division there. Uh, probably a g- good thing that that, that, you know, there's a division there. Uh, divisions, division can actually help with identifying something that is dangerous or, or um, you know, damaging versus not. So there is a form of division that I think is a positive form or use of it. Um, but negative division would be one where it just causes people to fight each other over things that generally don't matter. Um, or they or, don't matter to the extent that they're willing to take the argument, such correct. as bodily harm or public shaming or correct. You know, we we mentioned ISIS, but to be fair, that's that's you know not a Christian organization. That's 
within the Muslim community. So let's pick on one in Christianity. I think like Westboro Baptist. Yep. Uh, things that, although you know, people would argue well, that's just like fifteen people in a little church, but they're very public oriented. Or you could you could start talking about the the David Koresh scandals, mm-hmm. things like that. Any number of these these cult connections. So, yeah, I just think <laughs> it, it's everywhere. It is absolutely everywhere. Just how negative this. Yeah, I'm just. I'm losing my mind on that, but I'm just saying that the, the division, we, we do need division at a certain extent to point out what's bad and what's good or make it clearer to see that certain things are just clearly bad and just, they're not the mainstream belief of something. Yeah. Help I me, think, Ryan. <laughs> I, I, no, I think, sorry, my dog started barking and I had to go let her out and Henry did what is known as stalling. Um, while I and not very successfully while I tried to do that, so sorry about that awkwardness for the last thirty seconds. Um, the The main issue I think is that d- multiple denominations does not inherently, I don't think, cause division. I think they are the result of internal division that already existed. Mm. So I think they are the expression of a division that has long already existed versus. Um, Versus creating the division themselves. It's kind of like the old joke when I was a kid that they said, how do Baptist churches plant new ones? They try to change the color of the carpet. Exactly. Yeah, but that, exactly. Like, that's the... Amazing. Um, that is the... That's the <laughs> idea, right? So the Methodist church splitting over LGBTQ plus same-sex marriages and, and ministers. And um, the idea was the division has been there for decades. And it's reached a point where the, the, the two or more groups that believed different things can no longer, this issue becomes so big for them, they're no longer willing to sit and cooperate and coexist on all the Correct. other things they agree on. It has become yeah. an irreconcilable difference, and for better or for worse. And so I don't think denominations themselves are the source of division. I think they are the, at the, at the... They're a tool that people that are already divisive I would just say they're kind of the ultimate expression of division outside of like actually harming the people you were divided against but like that's they they really are like if there is a if there is a denomination you can be sure that the the division already happened it's not happening it already happened yeah um so the like you could argue within seventh-day adventism where we are currently arguing over women's ordination that's the big one we've been arguing over it since basically the 60s and 70s which again from a historical perspective shows again we're way behind the presbyterians which is why i brought them up those yeah they were just the first ones to start splitting over these things we Correct. were all playing catch up but we're arguing over those but it hasn't become an irreconcilable difference where we've where where any at any large gathering or official gathering of church leaders it's been suggested that we split it's seriously suggested that we split up it's come from members that oh well they should just go and find their, make their own denomination then but it's never come outright from leaders. But the division already exists. It just has not reached a place where it has become such an irreconcilable difference that there's a there's a mass exodus of of people. So that is the that is what I mean by denominations not inherent inherently causing division. So this brings us to now that we've kind of debunked a lot of this and addressed a lot of this, I you know, the the I think the time now has come to to ask why does any of this matter why you know does belonging to a denomination even matter yes and no <laughs> uh, again you're going to realize this is this is 
Yep. These are nuanced answers in this thing. It's not just simple like, yes, we're done. Thank you for listening to A Beautiful Faith. <laughs> no, but, I mean, a denom- belonging to a denomination matters only in the sense that that is how community is organized Yep, currently. And so that being the sense, as we've already said before, it is biblical and inherently important to your reconstructive journey and just your faith journey period to exist in community. We're not islands unto ourselves in this. From the, from the biblical perspective, we were never supposed to be islands unto ourselves in this. And especially when the gospel is as much as reconnecting us to God as it is to each other, you can't say the gospel has been successful only reconnecting you to God. If yeah. you're not reconnecting to other people, if you're not having healthier relationships, if you're not knowing how to coexist with it, then something's not working. So you, you need community. And because communities are divided along denominational subsets, because you go to the same building or the same event or the whatever, you know, they're, yep. they're denominations. So denominations matter, I think, because they help you sort and find a community to journey with. I think that's where they would matter. Yeah. Where I would say they don't matter is they don't matter for salvation. No. For like for a salvific component. Yeah. If right? you are a if you are a Christian denomination, I, I, I can't think of a Christian denomination that I mean the it's in the name Christ. I mean the idea is that you believe in Jesus Christ to some extent. Um and now there are some denominations that definitely do preach a more works-based salvation and um, how you get saved is slightly different, but just... Right, the, but that's moving on the continuum towards cult. Correct. So the... Um, so All these nuances. There are, some, there are some base kind of things that are in common across the board, but um, for the most part, it's just helping you identify the differences that, um, that can help you figure out which which community, as you said, to journey with. So for, as an example, um, I don't believe, um, at, as an Adventist and just as an individual, uh, I don't believe in immortality of the soul as a, as a doctrine or, or faith belief. I don't believe that when you die, your soul is taken up to heaven and um, there is, I can, you know, the, my so my dad died when I was 17 um, and now he's looking down and watching me. I don't believe that. Or um, the inverse... That he's yes. down in a lake of fire somewhere. Yeah, or that he's down in a lake of fire, um, which also don't believe. So, the but the I don't believe that. So for me, um, you know, having people tell me, "Oh, your dad is so proud of you," looking down or watching you from heaven, I'm like, oh, "Nah, he's not. He's neutral because he's not doing anything because he's dead." Yeah, basically, immortality of the soul means that your soul does not exist outside of the the body container. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it doesn't make sense for me to be a part of a community that would, that, that a lot of its beliefs about humanity and how we treat each other are based off of the idea that the soul is immortal. Um, and using language like that, that I just don't believe and does not, um, is, is incompatible. Like it's just two complete opposites. It turns out that for me, Adventism has the matches the unique blend of beliefs that I have. And had after I, you know, tore my beliefs apart and decided what I actually believed, that um, I come back to and I say, yeah, this is this is the only place that I can go that my unique set of beliefs t- matches the most with, so I know that I can find common ground with other people there, in a comfortable way. Thus, 
helping to build the rest of my faith. I'm going to say, and it brings an accountability in an area that you want, which kind of goes back to, again, why do denominations matter? Again, not for salvation, or I could even say, because some people are probably already thinking it, not even for human connection, right? It's not that you can't go join communities of golf clubs or bowling alley leagues or, or a gaming club or, you know, video game tournaments, whatever. Uh, That's, that's not what we mean by that. Denominations matter in the sense because it's not just about community. It's in the faith sphere. It's covenantal accountability. Yep. Right. It's not just that you believe this and somebody else believes this. It's as you're going through life or whatever, it's each of you helping one another either maintain beliefs that you feel are important to you or strengthening them or helping you deconstruct in a safe way things that, no, we need to grow and learn that this isn't quite right or whatnot as you move forward. So it, it's not just for c- human connections, for, it's for faith accountability. Yeah. Right. So in, in that sense, that's another reason why they would matter. They're not... Yeah. I mean, the, the reality is whether or not you end up identifying actively with a denomination, it's likely that your beliefs match one of them. Or are not all of them, but you should probably have a, you know, 75% agreement somewhere around the board. Most people are going to fall into that kind of thing where there's there's one, how do we put this? You need a, you need a starting point. You need a base layer. Right, which kind of you were talking about the reason, like, well, you're a Seventh day Adventist, and that would kind of come to my own personal journey when I was done with Reconstruction for the most part. Now, there's still little things I don't tweak here or there in the Reconstructive journey. Is that I, I'll be right up front in as far as like denominational identity. I do not agree with everything that the Seventh day Adventist Church lives, does, whatever. Because remember, we said denominations aren't just the theology written down on paper, they're. they're Traditions, traditions, priorities. And priorities. Yeah, so if there's, like, Adventist church leaders listening and all of a sudden freakingout.com, like, oh, no, we got to terminate him because he doesn't believe our theology. Oh, no, the theology's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not the thing that either of us have an issue with, really. uh, Trust me, I have... And this kind of gets to that journey. Why am I... Why am I hitching myself to this particular denominational persuasion. It's because I knew, even if I don't agree with everything, I had to have a bait. I have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And though I don't agree with everything within the denominational family, so to speak, I, I, if I'm going to have to start somewhere as a base point to keep working on accountability, on changing community, on making it better to more live up to its theology or whatever, I, how far back do I want to start? Yeah. That's kind of the question I had to ask myself. I said, sure, it's got problems. It has a lot of problems, okay? So does everybody. So I guess the question is, how many problems, how far back on the journey to making something great do I want to start? Yep. Do I want to go join with this community over here, name whatever it is, that disagrees with me on nine of my ten beliefs? Or do I want to start with this community over here that disagrees with me on four of my ten beliefs? Yep. I'm not saying both are perfect and fit your particular faith journey great, but which one is going to be easier yeah. for you to grow in or which one's going to cause you more of like, you're just going to keep coming home angry and frustrated and annoyed. Right. Yeah. You know? And so that was kind of me. I was like, well, on paper, Adventism is seventh day Adventism is, is it matches more closely what I understand from scripture and my faith journey. Yeah. 
there's things I disagree with, but it's a lot less that I disagree with than, say, going back to being a Southern Baptist. Yeah. Right? And that's nothing against them or that or whatever or wherever you are on your journey. I'm just saying I I didn't want to have to fight that many battles. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm kind of, I'm here right now because uh, we still got a lot of work to do, but it's less work than if in my journey than if I started way over there. <laughs> well, and and I think, too, I, you know, I, I used a phrase earlier that I that was probably an, in, an inappropriate phrase to use. It just wasn't fully accurate when I said, you know, when I went through my reconstructive journey, I don't think the reconstructive journey ever ends. And I think, I think the important thing with the denominational affiliation and figuring out kind of where you, where you land is under, understanding the point of a reconstructive journey or the reconstructive journey really is to figure out what your framework is, what your foundation is and what your framework is that you're building the house with. Right. And then it becomes a matter from there, I would say, once you've determined what the, the framework is, it ma- then, it, then it's just normal construction from there. Um, and so that's kind of the rest of your, your spiritual journey. And the, so, so for denominational affiliation, really what you're, deciding, what you're determining is, what, are the, what, are the, what is the framework? What are the, what are the framework pieces that I need in my faith, you know, that, I, that I truly believe? that now I can begin building the rest of the house when these are in place. Are there right. any denominations that it makes the most sense for me to be a part of any faith community period for me yeah. to be a part of that seems to match those? It's not an echo chamber because you're not inherently looking for everyone for someone to dis, to agree with everything because as and there you are can, some people that do that yes. and that's what makes unhealthy yeah. denominational use. Again, I think denominations are a tool and like any tool they're amoral. Yep. But how you use it can be moral or unethical. Well, right? and and exactly. So I I view labels as actually labels when used appropriately and denominational labels when used appropriately simply give us the framework with which to connect with someone else. It speeds because up the process. I if, move into yep. a new town. I don't have to go ask all 5,000 inhabitants, what do you believe theologically? I just look yep. around and see there's five churches and they have a label, which means those people must in general agree with at least these certain key things. It just... It just they're useful for sorting really quick. Yeah, and and honestly, making a friendship or relationship with because let's say I if I know anything to be true about Adventists and I'm talking with an Adventist and I know that they don't believe in immortality of the soul. Maybe if maybe when they're going through as a friend, when they're going through a grieving process, maybe I won't say, "Oh, well, I'm so glad they must be looking down on you so proud of you for how far." <laughs> like yeah. it it provide I'm speaking from baggage there, but there is a there is a a reason or a way to use labels as a way to connect with someone else on a personal one-to-one level. Oh, correct. For example, if I meet someone who is a Jew, yep, I know probably the best way to connect with them is not offer them a pork roast. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, ac- absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, they might believe unique individual flavors of that. We can't paint everybody in a denomination or a religion with the same brush, obviously, but for the most part, it just helps facilitate relationship like you said yeah absolutely so um so what does this mean for believers out there who right now are caught in the middle those on their reconstructive journey trying to figure out like what do i do with all of this and uh if it if i don't need to be you know if i don't need to be a part of one to be saved um why does it you know what does it mean to me what do i need to do what do i do next what are my next steps if i'm caught in the middle and i don't know what to do i you know you've just told me there are 200 and i only knew of 5 and now you've really ruined things for me what what steps do i take especially when each denomination is basically saying that if you don't belong to that particular denomination then you're lost 
right? Well, first so of the all, stakes the, seem so high. First of all, to annoy somebody listening, I'm sure, if your particular denomination or all of them say, if you don't you know, be- belong to us, you're lost, they're stupid. <laughs> Elstupido.org. Yeah, they, they, Elstupido.org. They, they have lost my respect in that area. There are individual believers in every denomination that would say that. Yeah, and absolutely, I but I don't don't respect that position. Yeah, I it's just I don't hate people, itself. but I don't I don't respect that. I don't think that's biblical. Yeah. But that that being said, uh, what does this all mean for believers that are caught in the middle? I think step one, something you you know alluded to, Ryan, is you need to sit down and be confident enough in your own journey to know what are your non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. What are what are what are the keys to your personal faith? Once you figure that out, that's going to make it easier for, I think, the next step, which is now take a look at these denominations, do some research, reach out to some religious leaders or something, or friends you know from these different groups or, or whatever else, and figure out what community, not it's going to be a perfect match. Maybe there's something that's going to be a perfect match yeah. to what you believe on your particular part of your journey. But don't, don't go into it thinking, I'm going to find someone that agrees with me 100%. Like we said, it's not an echo chamber. Yeah. But go, okay, now that I know what my non-negotiables are, what my core principles of my faith are, are there any one of these 200 denominations that, at least on paper, because each individual church can have its own flavors, on paper are is closest to what I believe? That, that's going to be the most useful information for you to help yep. make a decision. What's your non-negotiables? Who's closest to that? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly it. What are the deal breakers for you? And what what is an irreconcilable difference? And it's okay that everyone's is going to be different. And in fact, many of those things are actually end up being de- or are usually determined by life circumstances more yeah. so than anything else. Before I started dealing with the stuff from from my dad's death, like I probably wouldn't have said that that one was a non-negotiable for me. Yeah. But I will say that I also have evidence of that and believed that prior to the experience happening. Um and I, I do believe biblically that it it is a sound doctrine and idea. Like, I don't just hold on to it because I need to believe it for my own sanity um, or health, but rather, it but experientially may, turned it into a non-negotiable for me. Yeah. And that's, that, that is, it, it turned into kind of an anchor point. And, and um, again, once you do all of this, it's going to really make your job easier. So, for example, one of my non-negotiables ended up being Saturday Sabbath. Mm-hmm. versus Sunday Sabbath. And not judging anyone who disagrees differently, but I'm giving this as an illustration. When I realized that was a non-negotiable, my 200 denominations to choose from dropped to five. Yep. I mean, yeah, I mean, yep. you know what I'm saying? So all of a sudden, every little new piece of information you do on a, on a search narrows the focus, right? Yeah. When you're doing research or whatever else. Well, it's a lot easier for me to sit and compare five denominations than it is 200. Yep. Right, I mean that's just, just yep. duh. So that's that's what I'm saying. Figure this out; it's going to make your job a whole lot less daunting. Yep, yep, absolutely. So, um, I I think that is a really good place to start. And I think maybe there's a lot of you who have already figured out what your some of some of your framework and some of your non-negotiables. Um, and what are I guess what are some questions if someone is having trouble? And, and I think we'll end on this. What are some questions that you would encourage someone to ask themselves or ways to identify their non-negotiables? Um, because I think there are sometimes where we may not realize something is a non-negotiable. We may say, like, I don't know if it is. I don't, I don't really know. How do I identify um, whether something is a non-negotiable or not? Ooh. Ooh. 
Uh, one, I would sit there and ask myself, what what thing that I believe is most important to me that I, you know, just yep. could not live without? And it, it's okay if that's multiple. Yeah, and it can be multiple, but that's just a really simple question. What? Yeah. What? I mean, even through your experience, what matters the most to me that I believe? Yeah. And it might be easy for you to figure out. You might have to think about it through life experiences you've been through, a, a tragedy mm-hmm. or a really high point in your life or whatever. But what could I not live without? Yep. And you know, I, I think... Um, there's another question related to that is, what would make me feel I am not saved if I didn't have it? Mm. I think this is key, and that's overtly, obviously, Christian language. I, mean, I, I guess maybe I should rephrase it. What would make me feel like I am in a negative relationship with the deity if I didn't know this? Yeah. Uh, because I, I would hope whatever religious tradition or whatever you're in, that it doesn't make you feel more miserable. Yep. Or make you, you a fe- miserable person. Or make you a miserable person. Right, so you kind of need to ask that. What, what if I didn't have it, would make mm-hmm. me miserable? <laughs> And what right, honestly, you know. like what what beliefs make the make my life and the life of my community better, um, as well. And um, I would ask, what are the things that if they were challenged, what are the things that you believe that if someone challenged them or said that's stupid or whatever, would set, would kind of set you off? I like now, to what's ask, a trigger? <laughs> yeah, what is a trigger really? Because I, I like to ask this so that people can help identify what they're passionate about. Like, what is the thing that when someone brings it up, you they can't shut you up about? Same deal, but now negative. What is the thing that someone wouldn't be able to shut me up about if they told me that this was wrong or dumb? And uh, if you don't know, list out your beliefs and then have someone ask you about them or tell you and find and, you know, do an actual exercise in it. Um, but And exercise your demons. Yes. Um, the, uh, but I, I, I hope that this gives people a place to start um, with, with this. And this is a significant roadblock. And I don't think neither uh, yeah i don't think neither of us are saying that this is not a very complex issue i think we've had an hour to talk about this and there's only so much you you know can do in that time um and we understand that if this 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 may not have been the key the magic key to unlock everything that you needed um and so to that i would say keep journeying keep seeking and if this was even a small step in the right direction for you then awesome um but yeah uh that that is kind of sums up my final thoughts anything you want to leave us with just like currency, every little denomination helps build your account. Hey, well done. Well done. That was probably the most complex pun you've had. I'm upping my game. That was like denomination the number of also is a word for currency. <laughs> well done. Well like, done. That, that wasn't profound. But anyway, we hope, I, I echo what Ryan said. Hopefully this is a, another step on your journey. And we don't want to minimize if you've been hurt by this denominational search process in the past we don't want to minimize your pain or excuse it at the same time please try and remember that denominations are a tool yep right and we're not denying in the least bit that people have abused it or will continue to abuse it however just because someone hits you with a hammer doesn't mean that the hammer doesn't have value for something if used appropriately Mm. So, yes, we're in the non-denominational, post-denominational era, but that doesn't mean, I think, as you noticed from both of us, we both believe there is still a value in them, mm-hmm. and we're just encouraging you to, to take advantage of its good side for your journey, and we're not excusing the bad side. Yep, absolutely. 
So there you have it. Uh, if you have any feedback for us, I, you can reach us through the show notes. Thank you all so much for your support and for following in us as we journey through these topics as well. And we'll see you next time.